Today, asking the Lord's blessing on the, the time we're about ready to have in his word, and then we will uh, we'll spend some time in his word. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who's come and, and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and, and rose again on the third day. We ask that as we now come to your word, that our hearts would be prepared to receive what you have for us. We ask that you would clear our minds of a a lot of distractions that are out, a lot of things that have been going on throughout the week, and help us just focus on your word, focus on the things that your word says, help us us and teach us how to implement these things into our life. We are so very thankful for the time that we have uh, this morning to spend in your word, and we thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So I know that in our culture today, there's a lot of discussion about safe spaces, right? And if you're not familiar with that particular phrase, safe space, that's okay. Normally, these are places, and they normally happen in in university campuses and colleges campuses. They're intended for students who are distressed, feel persecuted, feel weird, I don't know. They feel something, and they get to go to this place that's intended to be a a bias-free place, and there's no criticism there. Uh, It's only nice words. It's non-threatening, and it's to help the person feel safe and peaceful. I suppose we could get into an argument about the validity of safe spaces on college campuses. We're not. But what I do want to talk about is this idea that the world outside is dangerous, right? I mean, it's a dangerous place, especially for a believer. When we, when we walk around in the world talking to other people, having these other you know, going to work, watching TV, you do realize that all of that is controlled by what, what, what John calls the world, worldliness. And in John chapter 2, he defines worldliness as those, that lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We realize that in the world, all of the stuff that's out there appeals to our sin nature. We desire that. We realize that all of the non-believers that are around, they desire that, and they, that's what they want, and that's what they talk about, and that's what, they, that's what they promote. And so when we walk around, there's all this stuff that we want, and there's a whole bunch of people telling us, you want it too, you should go for it. And then let's not forget the, the adversary, the on-scene adversary of Satan and his, his minions who, let's be honest, of late probably hasn't had a lot of work to do as far as Christians are already tempting themselves far beyond what we are, that we could be tempted and we're tempting ourselves. But Satan is also in charge of this world and he is, he, he is causing a lot of these temptations to arise. And so let, let's be honest, outside for a believer is a very dangerous place. Everything is almost designed for our destruction, right? It is designed for us to fall. And so 
when, in a world that has a lot of trouble and a lot of danger, is there a safe place for the believer? Is there a place where a believer can go to find safety and peace? This morning, that's what we're going to talk about in the book of Proverbs, chapter 18. Uh, we're going to start in verse 2, and we're going to end in verse 10. And we're going to see how fools make the world dangerous. They bring trouble. They bring dissension. They bring fights. They destroy. There's a, foolishness destroys. Brings a lot of trouble, a lot of danger. We should not try to fight foolishness with foolishness, nor should we depend on foolish people to end other foolishness. What we're going to see in this text is that the only safe place for a wise person and for a believer to turn is not in the world, is not to other fools, but is to God's word and to God himself. God is the Christian safe place. That's it. So that's where we go for safety. That's where we go for protection. And in this sermon, I want to show that. So the, most of this text is dealing with the danger, right? So from verses 2 to like verse 9, we're going to see the danger, the trouble. And in verse 10, we're going to see this incredible uh, statement about how God is our strong tower and fortress. So, let's go to verse 2 of Proverbs 18. And notice what Solomon writes here. He says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. (laughs) This is really interesting. A fool, remember, a fool is someone who is not just does a lot of stupid things. We're not talking about somebody who, who's trying to fix a car and takes a sledgehammer to the car and everybody goes, well, that's a little foolish to fix your engine with a sledgehammer. You probably don't want to use that. And he does it anyway, and you go, well, that guy's foolish. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about when we talk about a fool is someone who rejects the word of God and does not listen to the wisdom of God. That's what we're talking about here. A fool is someone who rejects God's word, rejects sound wisdom. So a fool who rejects God's wisdom, obviously, guess what, does not delight in understanding. He's not going around going, well, how can I become more discerning in a way that's pleasing to God and following the scripture? A fool doesn't care. He's already rejected that. He's already saying that's a no-go for me, right? I don't delight in this stuff. And what's interesting is the word for understanding. We, we, in this study, I, I've translated understanding to be akin to discernment. A fool doesn't want to be discerning. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't delight in discerning. He, he doesn't want to necessarily do the right thing. He just is going to do whatever is good for himself. He, so he doesn't delight in studying God's word. He doesn't delight in studying the character of God. He doesn't, under, he doesn't delight in doing what God asks of him. Nope. Doesn't, doesn't do that. What does a fool delight in? Notice, a fool only delights in revealing his own mind. He loves talking about what's inside of his head. Now, by definition, if a fool speaks, whatever he's about ready to say is foolishness. And if you sit there and listen to a fool, 
Heaven help you. This fool, he doesn't want to know what God thinks. He only wants you to know what he thinks. Now, what's the danger in that? Let the fool talk, right? You don't have to listen to the fool. Put in earplugs, right? What's the danger of letting fools talk and revealing their own mind? Here's the danger. One, you and I can be foolish as well. How many times have you been studying God's word, you come across something that convicts you of your sin, points out that you're doing something wrong, and immediately you come up with an interpretation. You don't listen to it. You immediately come up with an interpretation to erase that conviction that you found in God's word. Is that, is that not the same thing? You don't really care what God has to say, I, I, but I want people to know what I say. Or, or how about this? Have you ever been talking to somebody about God's word or, or about theology, and the whole time you're just sitting there going, I wish that person would be quiet so that I can say what I wanted to say from the very beginning. And you don't really listen because you don't care, but you're so excited to go up and talk to somebody about something that you've been thinking about. That's foolishness. Uh, in, in having children, you know, you teach children lessons that you go, yeah, I probably should have learned that too. I didn't learn that, but hopefully they will. And, you know, we, we tell, I tell my children, there's a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth. He wants you to listen more than he wants you to talk. If God wanted you to talk, he'd give you three mouths. A fool doesn't understand that. So what's the danger? The danger is when a fool doesn't delight in God and he doesn't delight in God's word, he doesn't delight in discernment on how to live one's life. He thinks he has it right, so he doesn't have to think whether it is right. That's the danger. When all he wants to do is talk about his opinion, he doesn't want anyone else to listen about sound discernment. That's the problem. You see the trouble? So do we go to a fool who only speaks his own mind and isn't talking about God's word in hopes that he might say something that will protect us in the future? Of course not. We should never do that as believers, and we should never promote that as believers. It's dangerous. Now, now notice the next one in verse 3. When a fool comes, contempt also comes. With dishonor comes scorn. So here, the wicked man is, is akin to the fool. And, and when it says, and when he comes, the idea is when he arrives at a place, right? When he's around when a fool's near, right? When he's here. That, that's the, kind of the idea. The image is when he's around, when a wicked person is around, it says contempt also comes. And so there's, there's a little bit of a question in my mind. Are we talking about the fact that the wicked man has contempt for others? So when he, when he comes, when he comes to a place, all that's on his mind is contemptible things. All that's on his mind is shameful things. And all he does is sit there and taunt and scorn. Yeah, that, that's true. That's what a wicked person does. The question is, or, or is Solomon talking about something else? Is Solomon talking about when a wicked man is just around people? Guess what ends up happening? People don't like that guy. The community at large doesn't like that guy. And guess what happens when there's wickedness that comes around? It ruins his reputation, and it brings shame. It brings shame to him, himself and to his family. And, and then is he the object of scorn? So there's two ways of reading this. I kind of lean towards the second one, 
that, that when, a, when a wicked man comes, there's contempt from the community towards him, there's scorn, and, and there's all these other things. No doubt, by the way, though, if, if you do think the opposite, you're also right as well. Yeah, wickedness comes with contempt, and it comes to scorn. But I think this is more of the community's view of the wicked man. And let me say this. Imagine the most wicked nation. Imagine, in your mind. You don't have to blurt it out loud. But just imagine the most wicked nation you can think of. Even in that nation, when there's a person who acts wickedly and gets caught, there is also contempt on that person. And there is scorn. And there is shame. Sin and wickedness always carries this. This is always a repercussion. We shouldn't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't honor a wicked person. We shouldn't look up to a wicked person because if we associate with such a one, guess what? Our reputation is also damaged in the midst of it. But just think of this, all right? So when a, when a wicked man comes, so comes contempt. The idea for contempt is, is this idea of uh, is disregarded, marginalized, uh, disrespected. Uh, so, so imagine a fool who likes to talk about his own mind, goes into a community, ruins his reputation where nobody listens to him, but he is still sitting there telling you exactly what he thinks. Uh, it's kind of like a never-ending circle type of thing. But also what comes with this when he comes into a community is shame, a, a sense of disgrace. It's remarkable to me, even to those who have a seared conscience, those, those who have seared their conscience with sin and seemingly show no shame and, and seems like they have no shame when they do something, it's remarkable to me that sin still comes with it, the sense of shame. When I've done something wrong, there's this sense of conviction, right? A sense of I've done something wrong. That, that, that sometimes is a good thing for us to have, to realize that we're not perfect and that when we do something wrong, our conscience is saying, you did something wrong, you did something wrong. That's, that's a good thing. And, and so, so th- this is what happens, right? But, but this is the community looking at him saying, you've done and you are shameful. We, we don't hold you in high regards. And so then what ends up happening is there comes scorn. They make, they make fun of him. They taunt him. Uh, this God has done this numerous times to Israel. There's numerous times in the, in the prophets where he says, and I will make you Israel and Jerusalem a, a, a scorn and a taunt to all the nations. Th- this is very much a judgment of God, of, of losing one's reputation and even becoming the bad end of a joke. This is dangerous, right? This is trouble. If we are not walking by the Spirit and we're walking by the flesh, Guess what happens? All of this. Our reputation, our testimony can be ruined. This is, this is dangerous stuff. And we can't necessarily just bear down on the flesh and, and hope that through fleshly means we can overcome the flesh. Right? You can't do that. It will only bring more contempt, more shame, more reproof. Now notice in verse 4, notice in verse 4, this one's kind of an interesting one. Uh, Yeah, it's just very interesting. It says, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. So if we just stop there, you get the idea that when a man speaks, 
when he says something, that thing in which he says is deep water. And you would go, what kind of image is Solomon trying to evoke here? Deep water. Now, deep water means a couple things. So one, it means that's unknowable, right? If, if, you're, if you've ever been somewhere where there's deep water, you can't necessarily see to the bottom, right? Nine times out of ten. There, there are probably some cases that some of you are going to come up to me afterwards and go, I know of one place that has deep water that you can see the bottom. Okay, most of the time where there's deep water, you can't see to the bottom. You don't know what's there. It could be good things that are down there, and it could be bad things that are down there. Most of the time, whenever I've been in a boat in deep water, it's always been a bad thing because we're always hitting stuff that we couldn't see with the boat, right? So there's this sense of danger. I don't know what's down there. It's dangerous. It's unknowable. There's a sense of mystery and wonder, right? I mean, how many of you have ever thought, maybe I should take up scuba diving and going out and seeing if I can find any treasure down there at the bottom you know, maybe there might be some diamond rings or something else down there. Who knows what we'll find at the bottom? I can't see what's at the bottom. So, so there's a sense of, I don't know what's down there. I, I, don't, I can't see. So it's either something dangerous or something like, I, I don't know. It's a mystery. So the question is, how does Solomon mean this? Does he mean this as, as deep waters, as you don't know what's down there and it could be dangerous? Or you don't know what's down there because it could be great? So when a man speaks, it's deep waters. I think this is kind of a general statement, by the way, that anytime someone says things, it's really hard to really know what's going on, right? We can all say things, and there's deep waters, right? Even, even today, when I ask people, hey, how, how was your week? Oh, it's fine. I guarantee you, each person, when they said, it's fine, had a completely different meaning when they said it's fine. It's deep waters. The question is, is it nefarious or, or is it a sense of wisdom? I, I think Solomon is just saying, look, when men speak, it's deep waters. There could be good, there could be bad. It's deep. But the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. That's different, isn't it? The question is, where, where do we find wisdom? The word. We find wisdom in God. So when men speak, who knows what you'll find there? But when you come to God's word, when you come to God himself, there is not only clarity of what is meant, but there is also life. This book brings life. This book brings security. When you go to the Lord, the source of wisdom, there is great rejuvenating power there. Just men's words by themselves, who knows what you'll find. I remember one time I was watching a, a British TV show. I, I don't know how many of you guys like British TV. Half the time they talk funny anyways, so I get it. But uh, there's one show that if it's on, I'll, I'll watch it. It's called Doc Martin. It's kind of a funny show. It's about this really, really well-known surgeon who was from London, and he ended up quitting because he, he has a phobia against blood. And he ends up going to a very small town to become the, just the general doctor, right? Helping people with general needs. And it's funny because he's kind of, he's kind of aloof to people. He's kind of got the big city. I'm the, I'm the, big, I'm the big surgeon. 
and all the people are kind of like down to earth and like, yeah, no, we have remedies for all these things. So it's kind of funny. But there's one episode where he was trying to hook up his, his dishwasher and he, and he got the pipes crossed. And so what instead of happening was when he was cleaning his dishes, it wasn't using clean water. It actually was dipping into the gray water. And so all of his dishes were getting gray water on him. So they, they carried diseases. And so what, would ha- what happened was he got a new receptionist who thought it would be nice that while people were waiting, she would get them tea from the clean dishes from the dishwasher. So what ended up happening was everybody kept on getting sick. So he's dipping into this gray water tank where everyone is continually getting sick and sick and sick. And you know what the cure was? Pure water. That was, that was the cure. Here's my point. When people talk, who knows whether, whether they're talking from a gray water tank or from a clean water tank? I don't know. Who knows? But I do know one place where I can find the true source that brings life, wisdom, and success. And so wouldn't it be better to draw constantly from that fountain than trying to roll the dice on some other fountain that you don't know where the source is coming from? See, it's foolishness to go, you know what, I'm going to weigh out all of the men's, I'm going to try all the other waters from all these other guys, and we'll see what happens. A wise person goes, no, I'm going to go to the cleanest, safest water. The other is dangerous. This is clean. You see it? There's dangerous out there. This is clean. This is the safe place. Now notice verse 5. It says, to show partiality to the wicked is not good. This is a classic understatement, right? I think all of us would go, not good is a little soft there, Solomon. But, but he's using that as a, as a, as a rhetorical uh, figure of speech. He, he's saying it's a horrible thing when, when people show partiality to wicked people. And, and the, the, the phrase here for partiality is kind of an interesting wordplay. It has the idea of, of showing one's face towards another or lifting one's face towards another. So, so you have this image of, you're turning towards the wicked, and you're showing them favor. And then, and then notice, notice the second part when it says, and thrust aside the righteous in judgment. So you have the idea of a person turning towards a wicked person and then doing this to a righteous person. That's not good, right? To show that level of partiality and, and I, think, I think the idea here is in judgment in the legal system. It uses the word judgment. So it's talking about judges and how, how wrong it would be for a judge to, to really show partiality to a wicked person who they know is guilty and then, and then willfully push aside somebody who they know is innocent and righteous and say, you know what, you, I'm not going to show you anything. Now, I know that many of us are not judges, but I do not think we are immune to being impartial, right? I, I mean, this is something that the church has always struggled with. I think this is something the church will always struggle with. I think it's something we struggle with. I, I mean, just quickly, go with me to James chapter 2. Now, 
Notice what he says. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus, our, our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. What do you mean, James? For if a man comes into your assembly with gold rings and dressed in fine clothing, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, or sit down at my foot, by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil mo- motives? So it's not good to do that, right? It's not good to look at one and favor them and then not favor another person. This is something that's wrong. This is something that should be repented of. What's interesting in the later on in the book of James, you get a sense that the rich person is actually taking advantage of the poor person, by the way, and that the rich person hires a whole bunch of these poor guys inside of the church and then says, oh, I'm not going to pay you yet. Oh, I'm not going to pay you yet, and keeps the product for himself. So, so, it's, so it's almost as if the church knows that there's this wicked practice going on, and the church still gives preferential treatment to the rich. Solomon says that's not good. The, James goes further. He says, man, you, this is going against the very gospel and savior that we worship. So back in Proverbs 18, we can see how dangerous it is. Notice in verse 6, it says, A fool's lips brings strife, and his mouth calls for blows. Uh, yeah, that's true, right? Have you ever met a fool who just runs his mouth, constantly runs his mouth, right? So the first part where it says, and a fool, The fool's lips bring strife, the idea is it comes with a heated argument. Meaning that when a fool comes, his sole purpose is to come and cause an argument. And then it says, and his mouth calls for blows. This is either saying that he says way too much, that it puts him in legal trouble, that he then has to be punished by scourging, or it's the idea that he's calling for actual fisticuffs, an actual fight. I don't frequent these places, but I remember when I worked with people who, who, were, who would constantly go to the bars. And it would seem like every time that I would talk to them and they would go to the bar, there was always a bar fight. Which seems like a really strange way of wasting your money and spending your time of getting into fights. And without exception, every single time they said, yeah, there was a fight, but the guy was asking for it. That's what this is saying. A fool does that. He says stuff, and he's asking for it. He's asking for a fight. This is, this is bad stuff. And to think that this wouldn't happen in a church, of course this happens in a church. This happens all the time. I know I've done it. I, I know that I have come to certain churches where there are certain pastors with the specific outlook of saying, I'm going to disprove every single thing that guy says. I've done that. That's not good. And every single time I talk to the person, there's always a little edge and a little bite to when I say something to that person. That's not good. That, that's what he's talking about here. It, it, it always, it's not a normal conversation. There's always an intention of, I'm going to bait this guy into a theological debate, and then I'm going to show how bad he is. That's dangerous stuff. 
right? This is dangerous stuff. Notice the next one, verse 8. The words of a whisperer. By the way, the word, the word whisperer here is, is probably somebody who tells a story. So it's, it's somebody who's... Right? That's the, that's the image you get. The, they're saying a story, but, but they're whispering the story because they don't want what? Other people to hear the story, even though they're telling the story. So they want people to hear, but they want to look like they're being discreet. So a whisperer, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. It's like pecan pie. That's, it's pecan pie wrapped with bacon. That's what this is, right? So when a person comes up and... It's like pecan pie wrapped in bacon, and every single person goes, ooh, I want a bite of that. Solomon portrays, by the way, that all people see a juicy piece of gossip and slander as something worth eating. It is almost goes... It almost is kind of like one of those givens. If you want somebody to listen to you, you share a piece of gossip and they will listen because we love to listen to gossip, right? We love it. We love it. We can't get enough of it. Sometimes in the church, we, we, would, we, we delineate certain sins to certain sexes, right? Like men struggle with sexuality and women struggle with gossip. I found, guess what? Men and women both struggle with sexuality and with gossip. Because we love it. It's, it. it's so juicy. And then notice what he describes this as. He says, and it goes down into the innermost part of the body. So it's not that it gets spit back up. It's not that you take a bite of it, and as you bite it, it's sweet. And then as it goes down, it's bitter, and you go, oh, I got to get rid of this. Uh-uh. It goes down, and it stays there. It stays there. It becomes part of your psyche. I got to be honest with you. I'm amazed at this. I've been thinking this past week of all the different rumors I've heard and gossip I've heard on Facebook, the news, coffee shops, right? Prayer requests where people are pretending to actually care for other people, but they really just want to gossip in public. Uh, And I think about all those things, and I go, you know what? That always has skewed my thinking towards that person, towards that subject. And then when you get to know that person, you go, hey, you're not that bad, actually. What, what, why are all these other people talking so bad about you? That's what gossip does. It skews what you think about a person, about a situation with no or little evidence. And if there is evidence, then it's slander. And the sole purpose is to hurt someone's reputation. And we love it. Oh, give me some more, please. Please, please, please. I even wonder some of the times of some of the illustrations I use, even if we're talking about government officials, if that isn't a form of slander and gossip. And maybe some of the reason I like talking about it and the reason that so many people like those illustrations is because we love gossip. Nothing will destroy brothers and sisters and a church more than a rumor and gossip. This is dangerous stuff. So do, I go, so do I go to a gossiper to try to stop gossip? No. Then notice the next one, verse 9. It says, He also who is slack in his work, so he's lazy, is brother to him who destroys. Meaning, there is a direct correlation to someone who is lazy in what he's supposed to be doing and someone who goes around destroying things. 
there is a direct connection between those two things. So you find somebody who's destructive, there's probably a sense that you're going to find also a whole bunch of laziness along with it. Kind of an interesting connection. Dangerous stuff. So the question is, it's all dangerous out there. Where do we go? Where do we go in this world of danger? And, and we're, so full, we're, we're so susceptible to all of these temptations. I mean, as we're going through this list, how many of you haven't been thinking, man, I did that this week. I did that this week. I did that this morning. It's a dangerous place, right? Where do we go? Do, do we fight this with more fleshly things? Like to stop gossip, I spread gossip about somebody else so that they start, stop looking at me and look at someone else? Do, do I get a strong, violent man to, to physically intimidate someone else who's acting in a way that they shouldn't be acting? Where's our safe place? Do I leave to another place where there's nobody else at? Is that my safe place? Notice what Solomon says. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Now, this is not some sort of like magic trick where if you feel temptation, you just yell out, Jesus, the temptation is gone. When he says the name of the Lord, you have to understand that here the word name means his entire character and his entire being. It's speaking of God himself. All that God is, all that he's promised, and all that he does for the believer is the safe place. That's the safety. God. And notice how he describes God. He says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. This is a defensive position in a city that you would go to when you sense danger. You don't go in the tower unless there's danger. It is suggesting that God specifically for the wise person is the person you flee to and he is the one who protects you. You are not protecting yourself. You did not build this yourself. He is the tower and he is the protection. And notice what it says. It says the righteous run into it. This, this idea for running, this idea of diligence, idea of seriousness, coming with the idea of running into a tower, there's a sense of eminent danger. It's a sense of knowing I can't fight this by myself. I can't be the lone ranger. I need the Lord to protect me. Running suggests helplessness frailty. It suggests submission, obedience. By the way, do not think of this tower as, uh-oh, I'm in trouble because I sinned. Now where do I go? I now go to the tower. The sense is that you are already inside the tower for safety from all the things that are already dangerous outside. This is pre-temptation. This, this, is, this is a believer who runs to the tower and says, I'm living here. You ain't kicking me out. And notice, when, when, when we run to that, we're safe. So when I think of temptation and how do we fight temptation, it's the Lord. Now, now the Lord gives us and enables us to say no, and that, that's important to remember and it's important to know. But if you think that you have a strong enough will to fight temptation, or you're smart enough to outsmart temptation, or you are somehow a better human being than every single other person that's ever lived and you can fight temptation, you can stand toe-to-toe with all this dangerous stuff, and you're strong enough by yourself, you are going to fail epically. 
God is your safe place. He's the place of protection. You want to fight this stuff? Go to the Lord now before you even have to begin to deal with some of this stuff. Go there now. Seek protection there now. He's going to deliver you now. And as you spend time in his word and with him, he is going to be changing your desires. My problem, and probably your problem, is as I go, okay, I feel a little comfortable, and I think I'm going to go out and stretch my legs, right? There's not enough room here in this strong tower for me. I've got to go stretch my legs. And as I'm out there, then I go out, and then that's when I get into trouble, right? I'm in the safe place, and then I leave it. Believers, we should go to the Lord now. The Lord should be our protection now. Don't leave. Bring all of your kitchen utensils. Stay for a long time. He is your protection. If you're not there, run as fast as you can. Sell everything you have and live inside there. It's sad. It's sad that... So many times in, in my Christian life, I've assumed that I could fight temptation and I'm powerful enough to fight my temptations because I'm Caleb Hilbert. And don't worry, I bought a book from a famous guy who's got a whole bunch of little letters after his name and he's given me the four tips on how to fight temptation. And don't worry, I also got a little book that I read every day that gives me a Bible verse. I'm strong, I'm ready to go now. I'm ready to fight. Let's go. Let's go, temptation. What do you got? And then I fail. And then I go, well, what was, the, what was the problem? Well, it must have been the book, right? I'll get another book. This guy's got six. It's more complicated now. I have a better chance. I now have six strategies opposed to just four. I got two new ones. And then I fail. And then I fail. And I fail. And I fail. And I fail. And I go, what's the problem? The problem was that stupid little Caleb did not go to the Lord and rely on the Lord's strength, right? I'm going to run late, but I want to take you to one more text. It just popped in my mind. That's always a dangerous place for a pastor to say. But go with me just quickly to the book of Ephesians. I want to show you something. Ephesians 6, just notice in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong, notice, in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Notice that, in the Lord. And in his strength and in the strength of his might. So I'm standing in the Lord. I'm standing strong in him by his power and by his might, right? And put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see it? How can you fight against this foe? You're standing in the Lord and in his strength and in his might. That's how you fight temptation. That's what Solomon is suggesting. Now, I know it's a different dispensation and the Holy Spirit wasn't there yet and Christ hadn't died. But essentially, the principle is the same, isn't it? I fight temptation and the dangerous things in this world, and I am safe from those things because I find my defense in God himself. Any temptation can overcome me 
But when I am in the Lord, it can't touch me because I'm going by his strength, by his might. If I leave that, it's an inevitable thing that I will fall to temptation. So my advice is run to the Lord and don't leave that place. That's your safe place. That's your safe place. Now, they might, college students might need it today for different reasons. I don't care. You as a believer need a safe place. And your safe place is Jesus. And you should never, ever leave that room. Always be in your safe place. In the Lord himself. May the Lord give us both the will and ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are helping us fight against temptation. And that the reason that we can even fight against temptation is because you're protecting us. It's your strength and it's your might. I ask that as we fight against temptation, that you would deliver us and that we would see that our deliverance from temptation is you. Help us all fling ourselves at your mercy and at your grace. And may we, may we live in a way that is like your son by the power of the Spirit as it's working in us. I just thank you for today. I thank you for the time that we've had in your word, time to think about these things that are found in your word, and help us in our life bring you honor and glory. We say this in your son's name. Amen.